Welcome to episode 123 of the Jackson Hole Connection, recording right here at International Headquarters for, that's right, the Jackson Hole Connection podcast. This episode's sponsor is Prue Real Estate. Should you have any questions about real estate in Jackson Hole, give Dan Vazoski or Greg Pru a call or visit Prue.com. That's P-R-U-G-H to search current listings. Good morning, good afternoon, and happy whatever day you are listening. Thank you for joining. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host. My mission is to bring you a fascinating story of real people connected in some way to Jackson Hole. Jackson Hole is full of inspiration, liveliness, and excitement, which pulls people here like a powerful magnet. These people share their stories with you and I each week. The story sharing allows us all to learn about other people's lives, which can help us all live full lives. My guest today is Mark Fisher. He's the owner of Fisher Creative, located on the sunny side of the Tetons, right smack dab in downtown Victor, Idaho. I've been working on wrangling Mark to sit down with me for quite some time now, and I'm thrilled we both found time in between some of his world adventures to have a conversation. Have you ever wondered who organizes the films and expeditions you see on channels like National Geographic or CNN or some of the other channels you know? Who captures those jaw-dropping and inspiring photos and cinematography and documentaries or advertisements? Well, today, I'm speaking to that person, Mark Fisher of Fisher Creative. Mark is the real deal when it comes to adventure and documenting. I don't want to give away any of the exciting stories Mark's going to share with us today. So what we're going to do is jump right on in to the show. Mark, thank you for joining me today here at the Jackson Hole Connection. You know, it's only the Tetons mountain range separating us right now and a little bit of COVID-19, but welcome. Glad you're here. Yeah, thanks so much, Stephen. It's great to be on the show with you. Mark, I, I like starting off with people's connection to the valley. So can you give us a background of how you landed out here in, in the Tetons? Yeah, totally. So in a former life, I worked as a mountain guide, worked for National Outdoor Leadership School, the Jackson Hole Mountain Guides and Alpine Ascents International. And I was working for Knowles up in Alaska during the summer of 2001. And some of my co-instructors and friends were, you know, I'm, I'm a super avid skier. And they were like, Mark, you got to check out Driggs. <laughs> so, and so I didn't have any place to go because I had moved. I basically moved to back to the States from Germany, where I'd been living for a couple of years and, you know, started guiding in Alaska and then didn't have any place to go. So I'm like, great. I, you know, I, I will love skiing. Let's spend the winter in the Tetons, moved to Driggs, fell in love. And I've been living here ever since. It's an easy place to fall in love with. <laughs> Yeah, it, it definitely is. I mean, I came primarily for the winter. I mean, I was a total skid. I was working, I was uh, waiting tables up at the restaurant at Grand Targhee, skied every single day that winter. You know, we got free skiing at Jackson and obviously Targhee from working there. And then, you know, the backcountry skiing, I've been a backcountry skier for almost 30 years. So, you know, skiing off the pass, skiing in the backcountry, skiing in Grand Teton National Park. And I end up, yeah, I was totally in hook, line and sinker. But ironically, I, you know, it was 
a couple winters I lived here before I started living full time in the summers. And then once I started experiencing Teton summers, then I was like, yeah, there was a, it was definitely no turning back. So yeah, I love this place. And yeah, it's amazing. I, I love that you would leave during the summer, which for so many people, that's the most magnificent time of the year. But you being a I guess a snow hog, <laughs> you were just shooting for the winter, man. <laughs> well, yeah, sort of. I mean, ironically, I used to guide like, you know, wilderness mountaineering courses or guide up on Denali. And, you know, so I would go from snow to snow. So I would leave in April or May, go guide Denali, do mountaineering courses on glaciers in Alaska. And, and I literally would spend, you know, another three months on the ice during the summer and I would get Alaskan summers in between expeditions and whatnot. But, but yeah, I would, I would get these little tastes of, I would come back to the Valley like late August or something. So I'd get a couple of weeks of summer, but, uh, but finally I was like, yeah, I'm done with that. And that's kind of around the time I started guiding for Jackson Hole mountain guides in the summer here. And, and uh, I definitely love snow, but I love, I love summers as much as winter, really. It just was a product of the work, not so much uh, searching for endless skiing. And where did you grow up, Mark? Well, I grew, I was born in Washington, D.C., or actually Mar Silver Spring, Maryland. But then I moved all around. My dad was a civil engineer. And so, gosh, I lived in Michigan, Dubai for a couple years, um, Texas. I uh, graduated high school in Seoul, Korea. Then I went to college in Madison, Wisconsin, did a stint in uh, Bozeman, building houses, spent three years living in Freiburg, Germany, and then I ended up here. Wow. I, I'm fascinated to know how your dad, being a civil engineer, he was moved around so much. Yeah, he was a project manager. So he worked in um, transit systems. So he'd work on high-speed trains, subways, airports, light rail. Okay. Stuff like that. So he worked for he worked for a big multinational corporation called Bechtel. Uh -huh. And so he he just kind of traveled from job to job. So we'd be some places for two years, some places for you know five, six years, just kind of depended on the job. Okay. And now you have your own production company. Is is that what you would call your company, Fisher Creative, a production company? Yeah, hundred percent. So it was a production company, but we also work as a creative agency and it just depends on the client what role we fill but yeah we're a complete a to z production company we um yeah we do everything from documentary films to commercial marketing campaigns branded content uh editorial you know we are a little bit all over the map but certainly a specialty for a long time has been outdoor focused content you know i work you know worked for over a decade in the professional ski world remote expeditions you know, we've been all over the world on crazy adventures and, um, and, uh, yeah, but I started, I started Mark Fisher photography in 2006. So I basically went full time with photography then, and then 2009, 2010 incorporated video. And then right now we're celebrating 2021 as Fisher Creative's 10 year anniversary. So literally January of 2011, brought on my co-founder of Fisher Creative, Eric Daft. We've been working together for 10 years. And here we are today, 10 year anniversary this year. So it's exciting. Congratulations. You made it through yeah. the toughest years. <laughs> well, 2021 might prove to be the toughest yet, but they, uh, for some reason, always feels this time of year, like December, January, you know, I feel like starting a Thanksgiving, everyone just disappears. 
And then you have all this year end craziness and then people get through the holidays and then January, everyone's digging out from putting their life on hold for six weeks. So yeah, so I don't know. I feel like this, I'm coming out of the stretch of, of uh, the, the limbo sort of a uh, limbo phase, but yeah, it's uh it's going to be an exciting year. We're excited, but, uh, but yeah, it's cool. We've got a team, you know, we've got a cool office right in downtown Victor. So anyone's around, you got to stop into the new, the new digs are incredible. They're uh, right next to sandwich between uh, Chiang Mai Thai and Moonshine Liquor right above Fitzgerald's Bicycle. So it's a really cool little spot in Victor and everyone's welcome. We got beer on tap, gourmet coffee and a uh, ping pong table. <laughs> and, and if you need a bike to go get, make a quick run anywhere, you can get a bike real quick and uh, get a bottle of liquor and eat Thai food. Exactly. I mean, you can literally drop your bike off, get tuned grab some the best Thai food around next door. You can get the wine next door and you can come up here and play some pong while you're waiting for your bike to get tuned. <laughs> I wish every little uh, neighborhood had something like that to it. It would be complete entertainment. That'd be perfect. <laughs> yeah. What's funny. It's funny you say that, you know, it's, um, you know, we haven't talked really about, about community, but you know, I mean, being in a Valley, being in a community for pretty much 20 years and previously the creative studio was, it was basically a, a really nice large apartment above the garage at my old house. But, but being downtown and, you know, when the opportunity came up to purchase this building, I bought it with the um, owners of Fitzgerald's and really have an impact on the community I love and, and, you know, put something downtown, be a part of what I feel is positive growth in the community and then have this corner kind of come to life with, with what we just talked about, like the restaurant and the liquor store and the bike shop and there's a hair salon and a yoga studio. And it's really cool to, to be able to, you know, as, as you grow a business and, and grow roots in a community, just to, to feel like not just what you do for work, but where your work lives and its location and its, its effect on the community. And, and what I hope is a positive way is, is it's nice to be part of that. Well, I'd say with the size of Victor, it's probably hard not to be a part of that community, especially after being there for 20 years. And in, in the pre-show, you just mentioned that you're starting something called Why Victor. Tell, tell me about what, what that program is, what that project is. Well, well, to clarify, so Why Victor is more just a little, that's more just like a little social post about okay. why, you know, why, you know, what the office is all about. And, and, and certainly some of the you know, reasons why both Eric and myself moved to this Valley. It's definitely not intended to be a marketing piece to like come to Victor, (laughs) but it's, it's really focused around a couple core things. You know, it's like, why Victor, you know, I, I love both sides of the Hill and, and and I love they're totally unique from access to the park, to the people, to the recreation, to, you know, food. And so I think both sides offer really cool things. I just feel really blessed to be able to work and live in Victor because so many people are forced to, you know, commute the pass um, for work. And so the opportunity to live here, the community is incredible. You know, we've got high speed fiber internet everywhere. We're easy access to two airports and we've got world-class recreation out the back door. So being able to you know, it's, it's hard to, it, like you said, Victor's small and it's growing rapidly, like everywhere around here, but um, it is really hard to, to make it work, to have a business in Victor, in Teton Valley. And certainly virtual work is, is changing that, but, but yeah, with what we do with, you know, having a global clientele, we're, we're traveling a lot 
you know, when we travel to work, we're not driving the past, we're flying to Hong Kong or, or Europe or, you know, so, so our, a lot of our work when we travel is, is bigger trips and outside of the area anyway. So yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I love Victor. It's, it's amazing. Now, what is a more recent creative project that you have produced, been a part of that people listening would most likely be aware of, or should certainly go look and and watch? Um, Good question. I think, you know, I think the most I think the biggest recent project would be 2019. Um, I was the director of photography for the National Geographic Everest uh, Life at the, it's called Perpetual Planet Life at the Extremes Everest Climate Change Science Expedition. And so Fisher Creative was hired as the sort of media company, production company of record. And so I organized the whole team did all the logistics for you know both the documentary film. There was a feature article in the July issue of the National Geographic print magazine. Um, the actual hour-long documentary aired, I think it aired publicly on the National Geographic channel first couple days of July, end of June or early July. So I'm sure you can go watch it there still. And it was an amazing, amazing trip. I, you know, Fisher Creator brought a four-person team. It was myself, Eric Daft, and then we brought in Dirk Collins, one of the former um, founders of Teton Gravity Research and then Brittany Muma. So we had an awesome team. And um, yeah, there were 38 scientists from all over the world working in and around the Kumbu Valley on the slopes of Everest. We ultimately installed a weather station at 8,400 meters on the balcony, which is about halfway up to the summit from the South Coal. And it became the world's highest weather station. And yeah, it was, an, it was a phenomenal project. Just just true, a true honor to work with Nat Geo and, and just really cool science. You know, one of the big focuses of Fisher Creative is, is being involved in projects that, that move the needle, that have a positive impact on, on people or the environment. And so being able to be part of something like that, that was, there was never a scientific expedition of that magnitude on Everest. So to be part of that was, was really special. And did you, did that, so I haven't seen it. Yeah, but I've heard it is mind-blowing to watch and some of the cinematography, some of the views that you are able to capture on there. Was there an actual summit to the top of Everest as part of that expedition? So on that particular expedition, not for us. Mm-hmm. We, uh, I'm not, everyone probably remembers those crazy photos from, I mean, Everest didn't happen last year because of COVID. So it would have been, yes, yeah, spring 2019 Everest season. And during that season in particular, it was absolutely bonkers. The lines of people waiting in the ice fall, the lines on summit day. So we were part of those bottlenecks. And we, and, you know, part of what our decision-making was. So, you know, for me, I was tasked with, yeah, I was managing the media team, but I was also, you know, from the guiding background, more or less de facto guiding the scientists that were on the mountain with us. So it was me. And Panaru Sherpa, Panaru Sherpa was the lead Sherpa. We were sort of guiding, you know, I, so I ended up being in the middle between the Sherpas and the scientists and sort of, like I said, acting in a guide role with, with the scientists. And, and we got to the balcony and for a variety of reasons, you know, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 Sherpa with us because the weather station was, it's a huge weather station. If anyone has been to the top of glory and seen the new weather station at the top of the boot pack. That's essentially the same exact weather station we installed at the balcony on the South Pole. I mean, at the balcony on Everest. And so 
yeah, we had to carry that up. We had to carry power drills. Plus we had a full ice coring kit. So we had two climate change scientists that were focused on the weather station and one scientist whose job was to do the ice core samples because the goal was to get ice core samples from the summit. And honestly, it was, it was a combination of the Sherpas were, were, were over it. And, this, you know, and the scientists were having a hard time, you know, not, not, not terrible, but, you know, between the people, the crowds, the Sherpas had really heavy packs on carrying all the scientific equipment. And we stopped at the balcony and looked ahead and, and there was no way we were going to stand in line for 11 hours. And, and to put it to put it in perspective, the distance to go from the balcony to the summit is fifteen hundred vertical feet. So it's not that far. It's the same as climbing Glory. I mean, obviously you're at almost thirty thousand feet, so it's a different ballgame. But but it's not that far. But it was just not worth the risk to put the weather station on the summit to to expose yourself that long to storms and uh, cold injuries. And so ultimately, we just made the decision that it wasn't worth the risk to to keep going up the mountain and we put the weather station there. Wow. How many people are in line for an 11 hour wait to go 1500 feet? You know, that's a good question. It seemed like a ton, um, mm-hmm. you know, over a hundred for sure. Yeah, and up there people. that's, it's tight space. It's, it's not like you have all the room in the world to go walk around. No, no, there's, it's tight space. And, you know, I actually, I, the previous year in 2018, I, I filmed a documentary for CNN and did make it to the summit of Everest. And so I know what it's like to, to navigate, um, you know, the Hillary step area or wherever. And, and yeah, it's tight. And coincidentally in 2018, you know, I had a small team. It was me, my buddy, Kenton cool. And we were, and I was filming this British celebrity, Ben Fogle, and so it was just the three of us. And, and so we were able to be very nimble and agile moving around crowds of people. You can unhook from the fixed lines and we were able to move quickly and efficiently, but we had three oxygen bottles fail. That was the year when all the regulators were failing because the O-rings on the bottles were freezing. So we ended up having to send, so we each had a Sherpa, but we had to send two of our Sherpas down around the balcony um, just to be able to keep going. So you know, you have, you know, you have group size like we did with Nat Geo, which was about 20 people in total. And if you start having bottlenecks, oxygen failures, weather moves in, I mean, that's when, that's when things go sideways real quick. So we just, you know, like I said, we just said, it's, it's not worth the risk and the data that, you know, the scientists were happy to put the station there and seemed to be the most prudent choice. Cause you can't, you, when you get a group size like that, you're not, you're not nimble. You start moving real slow. And um, it's a different, yeah, different um, calculus of, of risk and decision-making with, with being up there. I, I hear what you're saying with everything that you're managing, but I'm, I'm trying to really visualize and picture what responsibility is falling on your shoulders, your back to manage that, hey, we're not only are we setting up this weather station, doing ice cores. You have all these people who are up there and you're trying to doc, you, you're, you're not trying, but you are documenting it as well. And then there's the safety of everybody. What does that feel like, Mark? It's a lot. 
to be, I mean, that's, I mean, it's not a good descriptive word, but it's a lot, you know, that's the simplest way to put it. It's a, uh, you know, and I think that's why, you know, it's like, I mean, the Sherpas are the king of the mountain, hands down. And, and when the Sherpas and, you know, and I was with Dirk, so Dirk and Eric were with me, both super accomplished in the mountains, both super fit and tough. So it wasn't like I was alone in terms of resources, but the scientists very much were, um, did need, you know, they, they were not what I would call independent. They were, you know, they were very fit. They had done a ton of stuff in the mountains, but in terms of their ability to deal with, with, um, if something did go South, not on this, you know, wasn't quite the same level there. And then, you know, when the Sherpas are telling you we're over it, you know, they were, they were, you know, quite honestly, just over it. They were like, yeah, we're not going to stand in line and freeze carrying this equipment up any further. And so it was a mixture of like, I was put in the position, which this wasn't what, this was what I wasn't um, prepared for is ultimately to me, it felt like I was put in a position where I could have pressured the Sherpas to go further because that was our goal, but that's not my style. I'm like, look, if you guys are the ones carrying the gear, you've been on this mountain way more than I have. And, and if you don't want to go, and if you're not feeling comfortable going any higher then who am I to, to, push my agenda just to get to the summit. That's not what's important to me. And, and furthermore, the scientists were completely happy to not go any further. You know, I think, you know, we, we had also, I mean, I didn't mention this before, but you know, that year there were quite a few deaths. So we had already walked over one dead body on, on, you know, up into the balcony. And right when we left the South coal, there was a stumbling missing climber who ultimately died. So already, you know, the scientists were spooked and, and we all were, you know, when you, when you, when you're up that high on Everest and you literally have to clip your carabiners around a frozen dead body, it's, it's disconcerting to, to do that. You know, it doesn't actually, it doesn't put your mind at ease and that's probably obvious, but it's not. So you have those things going on in the background that are very poignant reminders of the risk. And so you factor those all together and it's like my job, ultimately, I was hired as director of photography. I wasn't hired as mountain guy. You know, I wasn't hired to really, you know, that wasn't, you know, my job was to make the coolest film and to get the best photos we could and, and do so safely. And so, you know, when I do factor all that together, that's where, you know, ultimately it's a pretty easy decision. It's like, yeah, the Sherpas don't want to go. The scientists are spooked. They're happy to put the weather station. Let's let's put the weather station here and keep everyone safe and go home. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. Like, it's, it's just like take out the variables. Um, I I cannot relate to what you experienced and what those other people experienced, but sounds like some sound decision making. Yeah, thanks. Well, it's it's be, it's better to come home than uh, than uh, you know put push it um, in those scenarios for sure. Yeah. I I wish that many people who experience the mountains, especially in the wintertime out here, had that same philosophy that it's better to come home than it is to push it because not everybody comes home, even in the mountains out here. No, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, it's funny, you know, like mountains like Everest, it's so much hype and everyone knows it. And, and yeah, it's, it's tall, right. It's a, a very tall mountain. You need, you need oxygen or most, most mortals do. And, but it's not, that it's any colder up there than the Tetons. It's not that the slope is any riskier 
it's not that exposure to elements is really any different. You know, avalanches are avalanches. They can happen anywhere. So the, you know, the, the types of risk, you know, when you're taking altitude out of the equation are the same. And, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, maybe it's age, maybe it's experience, maybe it's just, you know, perspective, but, but yeah, it's just, there are times when there's plenty of times when I push it and want to go for it. And then like a lot of people, and I think, I think from my experience, most people make really good decisions around here. You know, the people that I get out with, the people I'm friends with, the people that, you know, I think most people do make really good decisions, but you know, it's, it's anything we do in the mountains is, has an element of risk. And, and when there's an element of risk, there, there are times when things don't, you know, don't go as planned, but it's not necessarily, in my opinion, it's not, you know, accidents are happening or avalanche aren't necessarily happening because of poor decision-making. It's just, there's just inherent risk in, in the stuff we do out here. Yeah. Very true, that inherent risk. I want to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with you, Mark. Sounds good. When you're thinking about making a real estate decision, it's important to go with someone you can trust. Recently, I trusted Dan Vazoski at Pru Real Estate to personally handle a real estate transaction. The service and attention I received demonstrated I am important. Greg Pru started Pru Real Estate in 2002 with you the customer in mind. Give Greg or Dan a call at 307-733-9888 or visit pru.com. That's P-R-U-G-H.com to connect today. Let them know you heard about them from Stefan. That's me, the podcast guy. Welcome back. And we were just talking about inherent risks and playing here in the Tetons and Mark, you were talking about your Everest expedition for making a documentary for Nat Geo. And I'm curious that how did you acquire or realize that being out in the mountains and taking the risks that you do take and going the places that you do go was something that is what you wanted to get paid for, was where you wanted to put your career yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, my earliest memory, and, and I said previously in the show that I didn't grow up in the mountains. You know, I grew up in Michigan and Dubai and, you know, I spent like a big chunk of time in Texas. So it's not like this came because like my kids who have been skiing since they're 18 months old. It's But my earliest memory was watching an Everest TV show in a hotel room in Dubai. And this is 1984, 1985. And, and I don't know what it was. I, I just, I saw that show and I, I instantly knew that I wanted to do that. And, and then, you know, I had a few opportunities in, in high school to, I started rock climbing in high school. I started, you know, went on a, you know, like one ski trip a year, got, you know, hooked up with friends, but it wasn't until my senior year that, that I really was able to, to, you know, just structure my life around doing things in the mountains. And ever since senior year of high school, I've just kind of, I don't know, just the passion and the, and that, and that feeling. And I really feel, you know, whether it's climbing, you know, for a long period, all I did was climb, you know, alpine climbing, rock climbing, mountaineering, and, and skiing actually came secondary to climbing for me. And then I just, you know, it's the friendships, the camaraderie, it's the shared experiences you have in the mountains. It's that, you know, it's the mixture of, of, yeah, there's an athleticism, but it is truly the feeling of when you go do 
rad things in the mountains with friends, it's, it's an experience that you can't replicate in any other way. And it doesn't matter if it's skiing or mountain biking or rock climbing or, or whatever the activity, it's just the bond, the, um, you know, the being scared, being excited, working through challenging situations. For me, there just hasn't ever been anything like the experiences I get from being in the mountains. And it's not, you know, and it, it ebbs and flows every year with whether it's more skiing or more mountain biking or more climbing or, or whatever the medium is. But it's just that it's that experience from being with friends in, in the mountains that um, I'm, I'm hooked on. How do you stay in shape? So if somebody calls you up and say, we need to go to Denali to have you create a documentary up there, some people doing some work, how do you maintain that? level of athleticism uh, <laughs> i'm in terrible shape seven <laughs> well now I'm just, hold on I'm just, you being in <laughs> terrible shape is like some people dream level of being in shape no but i mean i mean i mean the whole jackson teton area is, is filled with like super athletes so um you know relatively speaking i'm always like geez i'm like really off the back mark but um but no, I mean, it, it, it comes from a combination of, you know, when you do something for, for so long, you, you have, you're more efficient at doing stuff, whether it's hiking or skiing or whatever. So there's the efficiency and the familiarity and the skill that helps a lot. And then I do what everyone does. You know, I ride a bike a ton. I hike Gloria a ton. I go up Taylor a lot. You know, I work way too much. So, you know, for me, and I have two, two small kids. So, you know, it's like you're juggling a lot. I mean, I go to Crystal Wright's gym and Victor, I do a bunch of CrossFit training at home in my basement. I've got a Peloton bike that I ride. You know, I get up and my sort of daily routine is I try and wake up by four or five and then I'll hit the Peloton, you know, before the kids wake up. And, and if I don't have the kids, then I get a glory lap or two before work. And, you know, I try to do stuff like that. And uh, sometimes it works better than others. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's hard. I mean, it's like you try and, fit in full-time work and you know it's uh I'm co-parenting so that's always a juggle and then I travel a lot and so the hardest part to stay in fit really is being being on the road and and one of the challenges that I wasn't you know prepared for is it used to be like you travel and you're staying at hotels and you can hit the hotel gym and I hate gym but it's like if that's what you got and you got to hit the gym I'd rather hit the gym than nothing but now with COVID all the gyms are closed Mm -hmm. So now when you travel and, I, and I've been traveling for work a fair bit, thankfully, but it's, um, yeah, when you, you, when you're stuck in a city, like, you know, wherever it may be, you're kind of the only option you have is, is, uh, to get out of the hotel and go for a run, but there's no gym or, and, uh, so sometimes it's more practical than others or impractical to stay, you know, to have any fitness on the road. Now, what's the reaction that people have when you, when they're talking to you and you've created internationally recognized documentaries and you say well i'm in victor idaho <laughs> <laughs> yeah good question i mean most people don't know what victor is and uh you know and and for you know for a couple years and it's funny my <laughs> my friend deidre sure a lot of people listening know deidre norman but she's a really good friend and um she used to give me shit because it would be like you know, we, she would travel on the road with me sometimes. And then I would tell people, I'd be like, oh, I'm from Jackson. And then, and then she'd be like, Mark, you're not from Jackson. And I'd be like, yeah, but nobody knows what Victor is. And so now, but now I, you know, I, I tell people I'm from Victor 
And then they're like, where's Victor? And I'm like, oh, it's, it's right near Jackson. <laughs> it's right near Jackson Hall. And so it's funny, but no, you know, but more and more people know, know Victor for sure. But, you know, when you get out of the U.S., uh, I would say almost nobody knows Victor. I think there's still people in the U.S. that don't know where Wyoming is. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, half the people you talk to confuse Idaho and Iowa anyway. So oh, they're like, I wouldn't be surprised. They're like, Idaho, it's kind of like Iowa. You're like, yeah, exactly. Just like Iowa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like Iowa. That's... Yeah, there, there, there's corn in there's corn in Idaho, but not not that much. <laughs> no, no, not not that much corn. No. Yeah, but no, but but it's it's fun. People are always curious to learn about you know know about the Tetons, and, and certainly when you say what I do say a lot is uh I live right near Yellowstone National Park or Grand Teton National Park, and then most people obviously know know those. So that's uh yes, most most people do know where those areas are. Fortunately, fortunately, uh. They're, they're still learning for sure. I, I am interested, Mark. I'm, I'm loving this conversation and, and uh, the things that you do because you look on channels like National Geographic and you see these documentaries and there's somebody behind the scenes who has to get that equipment out there and coordinate all the, the logistics of it. What are some other expeditions that you have been on that you've, you've led? Um, well, gosh, there's been, been a bunch. I mean, one of the more memorable ones was, uh, in 2013, we went to Myanmar and, uh, we did an expedition to do a first ascent on a peak called Gambling Razi. And my dear friend, uh, the late Andy Tyson, uh, that expedition was his brainchild and his now widow, Molly Tyson, great friend. She was on it myself, Eric Daft and, uh, a climber out of Salt Lake, Chris Nance. But yeah, we went over in uh, August of 2013 and myself and Eric, we did all the, we made a documentary, it won a bunch of awards and premiered at the BAM Film Festival. And um, we were sponsored by Patagonia. We were sponsored by Sony cameras. So we shot the whole thing on Sony. And, but yeah, to, 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 to do that kind of trip, I mean, we literally hiked 175 miles one way just to get to base camp. And it was the wildest expedition of all time because, you know, these, this is, we, we went where nobody had gone before. And, and when I say that there was, there was a, a scientist that had spent some time in this, these remote villages back in the nineties, but literally for, you know, we went in 2013 the 10 years prior to when we went, I don't think there was a single Westerner that had ever even been in that area. And so we didn't have maps. We didn't have any intel. We had, um, you know, it was, you know, you're talking cobras, leeches, pit vipers, sand flies, bees, you know, the whole, I mean, we, our bodies were swollen. You were wet all day. It was, it was rugged. It was gnarly. We got so, I, that was definitely the toughest trip I've ever been on. And yeah, and we had people carrying gear for us, like, like any expedition, but yeah, we hiked every day. We filmed all day. Um, you know, we we're eating, we we're staying in the villages and these are villages with, you know, 20 people in them. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, there's no power, no running water, you know, pit toilets, staying in people's bamboo huts, um, eating food from the village. So, you know, ferns they get from the rainforest or, you know, they'd raise a couple chickens. And it was, it was a really, 
it was one of the most unique and remarkable experiences I've ever had. It was, it was cool, but yeah, it's tough. Cause we're not just climbing the peak, you know, and then we, you know, then we ended up climbing this almost 20,000 foot peak. That was 3000 feet of, of snow and ice. And so similar scenario, you know, we're, we're, you know, we actually took two Myanmar students from the university of Yangon. Um, they have a climbing and mountaineering club um, in Yangon. So we took them that we actually called the expedition, the Myanmar American friendship expedition. So mm-hmm. same kind of deal. We, I, you know, I ended up uh, along with Andy Tyson guiding the Myanmar climbers on this mountain and, you know, filming the whole time. So it's sort of juggling a lot, but yeah, you've got to do everything else that everyone is doing, hiking, climbing, eating, cooking. And at the same time, you're, you're running around, you're setting up time lapses at night, you're offloading cards, you're charging batteries, you're cleaning equipment, you're dealing with broken equipment. So, so yeah, the workload is, is significant. Um, you don't tend to sleep nearly as much as, um, other folks. And yeah, it's, it's full on. It's, it's amazing, but you kind of just drop into those trips and, and you, you give it everything you got and you come out of those trips completely exhausted because you've spent, you know, that trip was six or seven weeks. And, you know, that entire time you're, you're, you're in it, you're, you're working hard, you're invested, you're, you're working creatively, um, you know, cause I'm really passionate about what I do. So yeah, it's just, it, it's, um, so it's mentally tiring, it's physically tiring, but then, you know, the reward at the end is, is, is truly, truly phenomenal. And then to, and then to, you know, put the projects together, whether it's photo edits or putting the film together, it's really rewarding. And then to be able to share that with people, it's cool. What's it like filming while you are, are climbing? I mean, what are you carrying in addition to regular climbing gear? Like how much weight does the climbing gear call way and then how much weight does your your filming gear because you're not you're probably not carrying one camera well you know it's a good question what we what i carry really depends on the what i'm doing so if it's an expedition like that or uh, on summit day on everest i go super light you know on everest i took one sony dslr camera so like an a7 r3 i took two lenses uh, a little audio kit and some extra batteries so you know, in that case, it's, it's not more than 10 or 12 pounds. And, you know, Myanmar on summit day is, is pretty similar where, you know, you're not taking that much. There's plenty of projects where we have a red camera or a bigger cinema camera, cinema lenses, but, you know, it could be, you know, your pack could be anywhere between 10 to 15 pounds of camera gear. It could be 30 to 45, just depending. I've definitely climbed the Grand with 40 pounds of camera equipment plus climbing gear. Um, so it kind of just depends on what you're shooting on. If it's a one day trip or a three week trip. I mean, um, there's a lot of variables, but it does. It's a, it adds your packs a lot heavier and, you know, backcountry skiing or, you know, then you'll have, you know, skiing with a 30 to 50 pound pack on is different than skiing without a pack on. So, um, yeah, it is. I mean, skiing with a pack on just with water is way different than skiing with no pack on. <laughs> Exactly. So it just kind of depends, but it's definitely a heavier load and yeah, you got to factor in the weight. It's critical. Sure. So when you're doing a trip like Myanmar and, or, or Everest and um, getting prepared for, for those trips, the amount of planning and logistics, um, how do you organize what you need in, in some of those remote areas? That's a good question, Stefan. <laughs> it's, you, you know, in an ideal world, you have a lot of time uh-huh. so you can figure it out. And, you know, for, you know, the Myanmar thing, we had 
you know, really we probably had six weeks to put that one together, but ironically the Sony sponsorship came in at the 11th hour. So we literally got like six brand new cameras, lenses, everything the day before we left. So we're like on the plane being like, how do we use, you know, like figure out. Um, and you, and you make best guesses about what to bring and, you know, and, and really like any mountaineering trip, you kind of need the same stuff. But like a huge mistake in Myanmar was we didn't bring any snack food. I mean, we brought very little, like we brought snack food for the climb portion. So we, out of a six week expedition, we had like a week's worth of, you know, Pringles and pro bars and gummies and snacks that any of us would eat on a ski tour or whatever. But the rest of the time we didn't have any snack food because we just figured we'd get it there. But then we realized we couldn't. So we were starving. I mean, I think I lost 20 pounds because, because, you know, we just, we were working. So we were doing 20 mile days in the jungle and it was way more physical than we thought. And so we, we didn't plan properly and we didn't know. And there's a lot of things that I know now that I would do different when I go back. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, you ask a lot of people like, you know, the first time I did Everest, I got the phone call two weeks before I left. And, and so in that case, I, you know, I'm calling Conrad, I'm calling kid. I'm like, what do you, I was like, you guys have a down suit I can borrow or <laughs> whatever. And, and friends help you out. You know, Conrad helped me out a ton. Kid offered to help. I mean, you just, you look to people that, that have done it before that know what they're doing and you, you get advice. And I think that's one of the cool things about whether it's the community we live in with just sports or whether it's the community of production and film, it's like, people help each other out. And that's, that's the best way. It's like, if you're going somewhere and you've never been there, then ask someone who has, and that's exactly what I do to prepare for trips and get as much information as I can about what I need to bring and what it's like to be on the mountain. And what do you think about this? And how, what's the battery charging situation? And do we need it? You know, all those, there's a lot of things to, to figure out, but sometimes more time doesn't necessarily help. You need the right amount of time to plan, but there is an element where if you start overthinking it or planning too much, then you can make it more complicated than it needs to be. So, hmm. but yeah, I, I, the friends, the community, the people that, yeah, I, I give that same help to anyone who calls me um, and the people that help me all the time throughout the years. That's, you know, I'm so grateful for that. And you can't, it's hard to do stuff without people sharing knowledge, you know, giving tips, when you go places you haven't done or, or do things that you haven't um, done before. Think about how remarkable it is to live in a community where you're say you need something to go on an Everest expedition and you probably have 20 different people you could call to get equipment that's Everest rated or, and get information about their experience and things to be aware of and prepare yourself for. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, it, it's literally, it, 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 it sounds silly, but I, you know, just there's like multiple people that you can call up whether it's just to like hey can i get some advice or, or in my case i'm like hey is there anything you could do to you know to, could you have a down suit i can borrow or you know lending lending equipment and yeah this is a, it's it's just another testament to the amazing community we live in and you know when i say community it's not just jackson or victor or whatever it's just, it's a larger outdoor community that we're all connected and part of um if it is that that's the things you're doing skiing and climbing and it's really it's 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 something you know earlier we were talking about you know what you know what led me to the to want to make a career out of doing stuff in the mountains or remote places and it's again it's it's a big part of that is the people it's like there's Mm -hmm. just, just such good people the people that 
that dedicate their lives to, to mountain outdoor pursuits are just, they're just salt of the earth, cool people. And, um, you and that shows through. Yeah. It's everyone just said, what do you do in the mountains? You're there for your partner in the mountains. And it's the same when you're in town, it's like people, people are there and um, sharing information and sharing tips and keeping everyone safe and having a good time. That's, that's so true. Mark, I have thoroughly enjoyed hearing about your adventures today and I so appreciate you sharing them. If people want to reach out to you and connect and what's the best way they could do that? Uh, yeah, just um, you can check us out on Instagram. It's just at Fisher Creative. You can shoot me an email. Uh, it's just info at Fisher Creative, F-I-S-H-E-R Creative. Um, reach out that way. Stefan, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And um, yeah, awesome to connect and chat it up a bit. Yeah, look forward to next time you're over in Jackson, give a advanced notice and we can grab a cup of coffee. Yeah, sounds good. Looking forward to it. All, All right, right, have Mark. a great day. Yeah. You too, buddy. Be well, be safe out there. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thanks. All right, bye. To learn more about Mark and his work with Fisher Creative, visit the jacksonholeconnection.com episode number 123. For all you listeners out there, please send us some feedback to connect at the jacksonholeconnection.com. I can find new people to be on the show through your referrals. So send them my way. Please get out there and share this podcast with all your friends and family. Many thanks to everybody who helps keep this podcast going. My marketing and editor, Michael Morey, my wife, Laura, and those boys, William and Lewis, and everybody else, and Luke Taylor, who is the music provider. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of The Jackson Hole Connection.